And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 3, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, for they, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for its perfections. We praise you for its clarity. We praise you that we have the freedom and the blessing of being able to read it and to hear it. And so by your spirit now, uh, convict us by your word, shape us and strengthen us and fill us with your wisdom and a desire to do all that pleases you. So use this time mightily, we pray, to conform us more and more to the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Cambridge University Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, England, has been for 200 years, this laboratory for 200 years, has been a great center of scientific research. It's the place where the structure of DNA was first identified and discovered. And it's been a home to generations of Nobel Prizing, uh, Nobel Prize winning work, the Cambridge University Cavendish Laboratory. And over the entrance, over the transom of the great uh, heavy oak doors leading into the laboratory is a quote in Latin, engraved in the wood. It's not a line from Plato. It's not a line from Albert Einstein. It's not even a quote from Isaac Newton. Over the doors, engraved in the wood, is a line from the Psalms. Psalm 111, verse 2. It says, The works of the Lord are great, sought out by all of them that have pleasure therein. Now, the idea that the Bible would be tolerated, much less engraved at a place of scientific research, is shocking for us. We, we hear that and we go, wow, well, good for them. Well, that's really nice. But it's also kind of shocking because it seems that the world of science has set itself in opposition to the church and to the scriptures for at least 200 years, such that science and the Christian faith appear to be enemies. But it was a faithful, godly scientist who had that engraved 100 years ago over the door of the laboratory, identifying for him that God's word was the inspiration and the foundation for all of his exploration in God's world. In fact, it, it is Christendom that uh, laid all the groundwork for Western learning and study, especially the sciences. Uh, Johannes Kepler in the 17th century 
He described his scientific research as thinking God's thoughts after him. Uh, uh, scientific exploration is, is looking into the things that God has concealed, but it's the glory of kings to, to search out a matter and to understand and to absorb and to glory in the things that God has created from the largest to the, to the smallest. The reason that this juxtaposition of Bible and science is so jarring to the modern mind is that we've just forgotten who we are. We uh, have lost our history. We've forgotten our story. We don't know where we came from or how we got here. There, there is no modern world, and this is something we have to keep repeating. There is no modern world. There is, there is no scientific pursuit without the framework of a Christian society. And, as, and we just see that proven as we in our society slip back into tribalism and paganism as we become more and more bloodthirsty and dehumanizing, it becomes evident that we cannot maintain learning and we cannot maintain liberty apart from a Christian culture. We must remember who we are and where we came from. And yet we have this great cultural amnesia where we're working overtime to erase any connection whatsoever to our Christian past and to the great Christians who created the culture that we now get to play in. Uh, we want to erase them and their faith. Uh, so we need to remember. And remember is one of the most often repeated commands in Scripture. Forgetting is one of the great prohibitions. Do not forget. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the mercies he has shown you and your family throughout history. Do not forget. And God constantly says, remember and do not forget because he knows how easy it is to forget. If we forget who we are and we forget who God is and, and what he said, we lose everything. And so Moses, when the uh, children of Israel were passing into the land of Canaan and he was giving his last uh, words before Joshua was going to take over and Moses was going to depart from the picture, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, he says, take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. Diligently hold on to these things, grip them and do not let them depart and teach them to your children and teach them to your grandchildren. Later he says, beware that you do not forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments and his statutes, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your, and your gold is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, that you forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God knows that we're prone to do exactly what we've done in this culture, to build a great society and then to forget where it all came from. And he promises that very same thing is going to happen to Israel if they do not deliberately remember and do not forget. And so over and over this exhortation, especially in Deuteronomy, is remember, remember to remember. Don't forget to not forget. Remember. Because ingratitude is the great uh, product of forgetfulness. We uh, grow uh, thankless in our, in our forgetfulness. An excuse that we often hear from children and we give them something to do. And it's usually a short list, you know, bring down your clothes, pick up your garbage and uh, take, take the garbage out. 
Uh, we give them a short list, and then we come back uh, several minutes later, and we find that they fail to do it, and what is, what is the excuse that we get in return? I, I, I told you to do these things. What do you, what do you hear? I forgot. Yeah, I forgot. As if that's all we needed to know. Oh, you forgot. Well, that's, that makes it all better that you forgot. <laughs> and what our duty is in that moment is to say, you know, I understand forgetting because I forget a lot myself, but you need to know that there are certain things. It's, it's a sin to forget. Don't forget because God requires you to remember what he told you to do. And if you are just forgetful of what I tell you to do, then, then I'm teaching you that it's okay to forget what God told you to do. You need to remember. God requires you to remember. And we let them off without correction because we are so prone to forget. We're in a conversation with somebody we just met and they tell us their name and we forget it five seconds later. And then we have to say, I'm so embarrassed. What is your name again? Or we try to, you know, pull a little trick where we introduce them to somebody else and say, hey, I need you. And then they say their name and then you remember it, right? Because we're so forgetful. We make an appointment. We don't write it down and we miss the appointment. We, we are forgetful. And there are real human physical and mental frailties that contribute to forgetfulness. I'm not denying that. The frame of children leads to them being uh, particularly um, easily distracted, uh, easily forgetful. But, but that's why God gives us habits to help us remember. We have his word that we're to read and hear. We have the sacraments. We have signs that help us to remember, to memorialize. We have the Lord's days and we have the other feast days to help us to remember. So in Revelation, Jesus comes to the church at Sardis and he says, wake up, and remember, because you are teetering on the precipice of death. Waking up, repentance, and remembering all go together in his exhortations to Sardis. Sardis, you need to go back over the things you have been taught, and you need to strengthen what remains. Now, in our study in Revelation so far, we've seen Jesus revealed to be the king of the nations, the true son of God, the true son of the Almighty, not the counterfeit as all the other kings of the world have been thus far. He's the true king of heaven, and he's coming in correction and judgment. But as is his pattern, when he comes in correction, if, if he's coming to sort things out, he's coming to the church first. He's coming to his household first to, to clean house. So he visits these seven churches in these seven cities in Asia Minor, which are all part of the Roman Empire. He comes to now this church in Sardis, and he uh, reveals himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's how he begins in uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we've already seen references to the seven spirits of God in chapter one, and we'll see it again in Revelation. And you remember what we, I said then that there aren't seven Holy Spirits. That's not, that's not what that means. Uh, he's not uh, revolutionizing the, the Trinity here. He's not, he's not giving us more members of the Godhead. But it's commonly understood that what, what this means is that God's spirit is the seven, sevenfold spirit of God. He's, a, he's the spirit who works in sevens and there's a completion and a fullness to the work of the Holy Spirit. He, his work is heptamerous. That means he works in sevens. There are seven days of creation. There are these letters to the seven churches, which are the seven lampstands. And each lampstand has seven lights. In the book of Revelation, we'll see seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. So 
there is a fullness to the ministry of the Spirit toward his people. He ministers through a cloud of benefits, through a host of benefits, through a swarm of blessings when he comes to work. And so Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God. He has the sevenfold spirit of God, and he holds the seven stars. What is that? Well, ancient astronomy recognized seven planets. There are seven planets visible to the naked eye. And so um, the, the ancients who looked up at the sky could identify seven, seven planets. There are also three references to the Pleiades in Scripture. I believe it's Amos and then twice in Job, the Pleiades are referenced. Uh, the Pleiades are a cluster of seven stars that are visible in the night sky, easily, easily visible with, with the naked eye. So whether it's the seven planets that he holds in his hand or he holds the Pleiades in his hand, Jesus holds all the heavenly bodies in his hand. At creation, on the fourth day of creation, God delegated government to the sun, moon, and stars. He, he delegated light to them, and he also delegated government. He says, I, I give you the rule over the day and the night and signs, seasons, and years and days. Uh, n- no man escapes the governance of the the sun and moon, which is why the sun, moon, and stars have always been symbols of government and kingship and rule and authority. Every flag of, of, uh, the, that you can think of, likely, except the one with the maple leaf, I think I'm trying to think of the others, a lot of flags that you can think of have stars on them or moons or, or suns. Flags typically have these, these images on them. And uh, it's because of this, this rule, typically, in, in, in human culture that we recognize that the, that the heavenly bodies have over us. And so in the scriptures, and you've heard me say this before, but it's important to remember that whenever you see stars falling or the moon turning to blood, uh, we're reading about the fall of nations. We're reading about the shaking of nations. Jesus is the one who holds the stars in his hands. And in, in Revelation, we see a number of these creation images because with the coming of Jesus, and with the institution of the church, we have a new creation. The first creation, the old world, is torn down. It's wiped out. The resurrection of Jesus and the day of Pentecost is the start of a new day. It's the start of a new world. The entire old world order is taken down and replaced in Christ, meaning Adam is dethroned. Jesus is coronated. The world is taken away from Satan and it's given to the son of man. All the ultimate rule and authority is taken away from the kings and the emperors and it's transferred to Jesus and his people. So this is the image of Jesus that comes to Sardis. Here he comes, the king of heaven, the king of creation, the king of the cosmos. And personally, this this, uh, mighty, awesome king says to the church in Sardis, looks him in the eye and says, I know your works. You think he might be so distracted with running the cosmos that he doesn't know what I'm up to, but that's not the case. The expanse of the Dominion of the the universe is beyond our ability to comprehend, but he doesn't have any trouble keeping it all straight. He knows this church and he knows what they've been doing. He says in verse one, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. I know your name. He knows your name. He knows what you're thinking about right now. He knows your deepest fear and your greatest longings. He knows. And he says to Sardis, I know your reputation. You have a name that you are alive, but actually you're dead. You have a good front. You have a good face. You have a good reputation on the outside. It looks like you have it all together, 
But I can look underneath the surface and see that in reality, you're a hypocrite. There's sin underneath the surface. The reality doesn't match the image. You're fooling lots of people, but you're not fooling me because I can see through you. You have the appearance of life, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. He says to Sardis, you are dead. You are a dead church. Now, I've often heard that accusation, oh, that's a dead church. I've, I've heard that accusation levied against um, churches who don't have the right kind of um, youth meetings or churches that don't have the right rock and roll instruments or other things, and that's what makes them a dead church. But that's not what Jesus says about this church. That's not why he calls them dead. They're dead because they're defiled. There are sins that they need to repent of. Now, Jesus doesn't list their sins here like he did for a couple of the other churches, but they know. And because of this, they're dead in sin. So he commands them to wake up from their death-like stupor to repent and to remember. He says in verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect. I have not found your works complete before God. Go back over the things that you knew and learned in the beginning and don't forget them because I've given you things to do that you haven't completed. Verse three, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Remember and repent go together. Over the years, you've learned things, you've picked up things, you've read things, you've studied things that convicted you when you, when you read them. You, you were moved by them, but you've forgotten some of those things, maybe even many of those things. You forgot the things you once knew, and one form of repentance is remembering the good things that you've learned and restoring yourself to them. Um, we, we forget and we think, for whatever reason, those things aren't relevant anymore, and this is what we mean when we look, at, we, we look at someone who's making really foolish decisions and you, you look at the destructive way that they're living and you think, you know, he really knows better. You, we, we say that. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't taught like that. He was taught better than that. Well, he was, but right now he's forgetting what he's learned. He's acting like he wasn't taught anything. And repentance is going to require him to remember what he was taught. This is why it's critical to teach our children to remember while they're young, to make a habit of remembering, because the ability to remember is the ability to move from sin to repentance. It's the ability to move from death to life, from destruction to blessing, from folly to wisdom, and that requires remembering. And we have done it. We've all been there, and we remember something, and we say, oh, yeah, I'm I knew that. I knew what to do there, and I didn't do it. And I was such a, I was such a dummy. I can't believe I did that. Sin uh, uh, it puts us in a place of forgetfulness. Repentance requires remembering. In the rest of verse 3, he says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This is, as we've seen throughout the scriptures, this is anytime the Lord comes in visitation for correction or judgment, that's a day of the Lord. Well, this is a day of the Lord because he says, I'm coming, but this is a local day of the Lord. This is a day of the Lord that is one church wide and uh, one church long. This is, this is a localized day of the Lord, a great and awesome day of the Lord on the church of Sardis. He says, I'm coming on, uh, upon you. I'm coming to deal with you as a thief in the night. I'm not telling you when time is up, only that your time is short. You have a little more space to repent 
but not much. I will come in correction. So there's hope now for the remnant in Sardis who have not defiled themselves. In verse 4, he says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Uh, I said last week that if we take the letters of uh, the, the churches in the second and third chapter of Revelation, we could lay them over a timeline of Israel's history, and the letters would match up with various periods of of, of Israel's history in chronological order. So the letter to Ephesus has all these things about um, uh, the Garden of Eden. It talks about the paradise of God. It talks about the tree of life. Uh, the letter to Smyrna uh, fits nicely over the, the era of the patriarchs. Well, uh, not to run through that all again, but when you get to Sardis, we are matching up with the exile period when Judah went into Babylonian captivity. And this letter lays over that, that time in history. And so this, this mention of the remnant, a few who haven't defiled themselves, that's what links this up to that, that captivity period. Late in the kingdom period, as the day of the Lord came near for Israel and Judah, as the whole culture was given over to idol worship, the kings and the priests were corrupted in this time. And the whole, uh, the, the whole culture was given up, but there was a faithful remnant. Whenever things look like they're at their worst, whenever it looks like the whole world has gone crazy, we're confident that God always has a company of faithful people in the midst of great apostasy. Like he saved Noah and his family out of the whole world. He told Elijah to take courage because I have 7,000 children who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And in Babylon, we have Daniel, his three friends. And later we have Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. And so in the same way here in Sardis, there are a few people who haven't soiled their garments. What does that mean? Well, that has a very specific reference to purity laws in Leviticus. If you come into contact with something that's unclean, if you come into contact with death or corruption, or you have an issue from your body that is unclean, an infection or uh, blood, uh, you have to wash and you have to wash both yourself and your garments. You need to be cleansed, you must be washed, and you must be purified together with your clothing. And I want to remember this and I'll say this again, being ceremonially unclean under the Old Covenant isn't just about hygiene. It's not just about sanitation, though there are parallels and there are many connections. If something, you know, if a lizard falls in your pot, you wash it out. And that was, that was a requirement, right? It, there is, there's an element of hygiene, right, and sanitation, but it's more than that. Under Le Levitical law, uncleanness is symbolic of death. Being unclean cuts you off from life in the covenant. And in order to be restored to life in the covenant, life in the community, in order to be restored in your connection to the people around you, you have to pass through water. You have to be purified by washing. So under the old covenant, various defilements required various washings. So let's start with Leviticus chapter 1. Let's read the whole book together now. No, we won't do that. But I want to read some sections from it because this comes up so often that defilement requires washing. And another word for washing, the word Hebrews uses is baptisms, all these baptisms. So just a couple of these references, Leviticus 11. If any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So uh, you 
and your clothes, your body and your garment, both need to be washed. In Leviticus 15, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean, blood or infection. Every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, and he shall be unclean until evening. So the uncleanness, the corruption spreads. It spreads to your clothes, it spreads to your bed, it spreads to your house, it spreads to everything that you touch. And then if someone touches the body of the unclean, and it even says, if you sit on the same saddle, or if he spits on you, it says that. He says, if he spits on you, or if you come into any contact with him, or something he has come into contact with, you are unclean, your clothes are unclean, your body is unclean, and you need to be ceremonially cleansed. Numbers 19 says this, The man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of Yahweh. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So once again, unclean in the Old Testament law, it doesn't mean yucky. It doesn't mean unsanitary necessarily. It doesn't mean unhygienic. It means that you bear a symbolic association with death. You have the curse of death on you and you need to attend to that. And until you do, you are cut off. It's a reminder of the curse of sin on all of us and the remedy for the curse. And the only remedy for the curse is washing. The only remedy is baptism. The only remedy is God's law. The remedy is at the tabernacle at God's house. All you have is death and you aren't clean by yourself. In fact, everything you touch and everything you handle and everybody you're around, you're spreading uncleanness. You're spreading corruption under the law. You contract death and you spread death. And you need something outside of yourself to bring you life, to resurrect you and to cleanse you. So the reason I wanted to stop and go over this is for a very specific reason that that these laws for Israel were a daily symbolic object lesson that death and corruption are everywhere, that they spread, it's easy to contract, and there's no means of cleansing yourself. There's nothing you can do for yourself. There's there's nothing you can do at your house. Cleansing is at the tabernacle. There's no other means. So now, with that background, you see, this is, this is the language that Jesus is using. You're talking about defiled garments. He's using Levitical language. So there are some in Sardis who have soiled garments, symbolically speaking. It doesn't mean that they haven't washed their clothes recently. <laughs> he's, he's speaking symbolically. They have soiled garments. They have contracted death. Why? Why have they contracted death? Well, if, if this is a parallel to the uh, exile time, then then the sin of the exile time is compromised. That was the great temptation of the Babylonian captivity period in Israel's history was was compromised. And this seems to be what's happening in Sardis. They have their garments defiled. They've contracted death. They are covered by the curse, one, because they're sons of Adam, but they've also added to their sin and they're under the judgment of death. They have the reputation that they're alive, but they're dead. And because of that, Jesus calls them to wake up and that he is going to put white garments on them. See, they don't have another change of clothes that's going to cover them in the day of judgment. 
They don't have something back in the closet that's white and clean that's going to fix everything and make it right. No, Jesus is going to clothe them. He overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will blot out his name from the, uh, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He's going to cleanse them and wash them in the only way that can truly make them clean. Later in Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read about those whose white robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you think, well, that, how does that work? How does washing something in blood make it white? Well, see, we're still speaking in symbolic language. He's the perfect sacrifice that cleanses everything. It's the language of symbol. And uh, the, the point is, is that we, in fact, are made clean only by the sacrifice of Jesus. No amount of Tide or Clorox can clean your garments. You need the blood of Jesus. And not only is he going to cleanse them, but he promises, I'm not going to erase your name from the book of life. There are going to be some whose names go on the roll of membership on local churches. There are some whose names going to be written down in the register, who belongs to the church, who later fall away in apostasy and unbelief and heresy and immorality, and their names are going to be erased. That's got to happen. Jesus has given his key, uh, church the keys of the kingdom, and we're called to use those keys to admit and to dismiss. But for the faithful remnant who perseveres in faith, Jesus says, your names are never blotted out of the book of life. And Jesus says, I will confess your name before my father in the presence of the angels. In the gospels, Jesus says this about three times. He says, everyone who shall confess me before my father, uh, I will confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, so whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my father. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. It seems that there are many uh, in Sardis who were denying Jesus before their community. And so at the last judgment, Jesus is going to hear them say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I'm not going to confess your name before the Father. But to those who endure and who persevere and overcome this temptation toward compromise, whose garments have been washed, who have been given life and who've been made clean, he joyfully claims them as his own. Jesus stands before his Father on the day of judgment and says, yeah, these are with me. I've got these. They belong to me. I know their names. He's with me. You see, if you're not united to Jesus by faith and persevere, Jesus doesn't forget your name. He's not going to be embarrassed of you when it comes time to present you before his father. He's going to robe you in white. He's going to clothe you in his righteousness. And he's not going to pretend like he doesn't know you. Though we're tempted often to pretend like we don't know him and don't belong to him. And what he requires of these Christians in Sardis is what he requires of us, that we remember him. He says, remember what you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Go back over what you've learned and strengthen it, rehearse it. Remember why it gripped you in the first place, how it consumed you, how at one point there was nothing uh, bigger or more important in your life than the fact that you were loved and accepted by Jesus and that he saved you, that that possessed you. There was nothing else on your mind. That was all you could think about. And we have to remember to remember, deliberately rehearse what we know to be true because we're so prone to forget. We're prone to think, well, you know, I've, I've got that. I figured that out a long time ago. I, I studied that and it doesn't, it doesn't really matter anymore. And uh, I've moved on to other things, and, and yeah, that's, yeah, I, I remember reading about that. Jesus requires us to 
refresh and restore and revive the first things, the early things, to strengthen those, those small things. Here's one example of, of how this happens, particularly in churches like ours. Um, there are a number of unique things that I really, really love about you as a congregation, that I love about our life together, things that make us un- unique that I'm convinced are really, really important. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty convicted that, that these things are critical, such as we all want our children in worship with us. The reason I want children in worship with us is because they're not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. They need to learn now how to worship and to uh, participate in worship. We, we want them participating in the signs of the covenant. We want them to be participating in the sacraments because Jesus isn't just for me. He's for them too. And his promises are for them as well. We desire earnestly to give them a Christian education because we agree together the secular education is not good enough. Jesus is irrelevant in secular education but he's not irrelevant to me. And I don't want him to be irrelevant to my children. So these are things that I'm pretty passionate about. And just a few of them, there are more obviously, but these are just a few things. But here's what happens in communities like ours and and churches like ours when your kids aren't little anymore. When your kids aren't little anymore, you forget. You forget how important all of this is. You forget how absolutely vital and critical these things are and you lose focus. You can't remember exactly why you were so convicted to begin with. It was a really big deal when your kids were little, but now that they're grown, it doesn't doesn't really impact you as much. You see, now that my kids are grown, they can sit and worship anywhere. They're not gonna be shuffled off somewhere else. They can sit and worship anywhere. Uh, They can go take communion anywhere. Nobody's gonna look at them cross-eyed if they take communion, they're big now. Uh, they're, they're out of school and now their education is up to them. They're, they're out of high school. And so before long, these things really don't matter to you anymore. And rather than abiding in them and persevering and leading and loving the next generation of parents and children and families, rather than exhorting them to faithfulness and encouraging them in the fight, you fade into the background and you forget that any of this ever mattered. And you decided decide that maybe it's not important to begin with. And maybe you wander away. You see, the church was there for you when you needed it and when your kids were little, but they got big and you forgot. You forgot how important all this was. So I'm telling those of us now, and I'm preaching to myself and all of us, I'm preaching to those of us with children right now in the thick of it, don't forget. Don't ever forget. Don't ever, ever forget how important it is to provide them a Christian education, to incorporate them into the life of the church in worship, to incorporate them into the life of the body through the sacraments. Don't ever forget how important that is. And when your kids are grown, you be ready and standing by to help the next generation to understand just how critical this is. So now you've got kids that are like, this is, this is what we did and we lived through it. And here's how you're going to make it. Because I know it feels like you're not going to make it, but you're going to make it because we made it, right? Jesus says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works complete before God. Jesus says, you think you're done. You think the job's finished. I'm telling you, you're not done. It's not complete. You're not finished yet. I'm not finished with you yet. Remember, hold fast and repent. Those words again over the door to the Cambridge Laboratory Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. The godly scientists who chose that psalm use those words to describe their work of exploring and meditating on the wonders of God's world in order to know him and to remember who he is and what he's done in creation. 
The psalm says, those who delight in God's works, ponder them. They remember well, and they go back over and over and over. They remember what God has said, and they do it by pondering his word. They attend to it, they seek it, they examine it, they treasure it, they inquire of it, they ask questions of it, they go over and over and over it. And this is why we sing God's word. This is why we read God's word aloud. This is why we pray God's word. This is why we teach verse by verse through the scriptures to get it into all of us so that we don't ever forget it, that we don't ever forget how authoritative and true and helpful his word is. This is what remembering looks like, to ponder, actively, passionately, continually reflect on God, the story he's woven through history, and the part that you and I get to play in that story. And then we praise him for washing us, delivering us, giving us a new identity, such that he's not ashamed to identify himself with us before the Father. But all of this is active. It requires duty. It requires uh, uh, perseverance. It requires deliberate action. It takes a lot of work to remember. It takes perseverance and discipline to remember. You must work to remember. It's, it's, it's a job to remember. Forgetting takes zero effort. It takes zero effort to forget. It just happens. You just go to sleep, take a nap, and you forget. And that's what happens. You, you wait five minutes and you forget. You don't have to do anything to forget. But Jesus calls his church to remember, to be a repository of memory while the whole world goes crazy and forgets. Remember who you are. Don't ever forget it. Remember who you belong to. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget what God has done for you through Jesus. Remember and do not forget. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call that you gave to your church to remember, but do not let us walk out of the sanctuary and forget it. Father, impress upon us by your Holy Spirit, by your sevenfold spirit repeatedly, swarm us with your blessings and presence to remember all of your goodness to us and the way you have washed us and delivered us. Do not allow us to forget. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.